Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and today's episode, author Michael Lewis. What a treat. His most recent book is called The Undoing Project. It explores how behavioral finance entered the lexicon of the financial world. What Wall Street has done forever is tell people stories to eliminate the uncertainty and make people feel like they're not in an uncertain situation. Where I would say, if you have any kind of money you're managing, you're much better off just accepting the fact you have the discomfort of uncertainty. If you do anything to remove it, likely what you're doing to remove it is going to make the situation even worse. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. Well, you know... It happened again. I tackled somebody in the CBS This Morning green room to try to wrangle an interview, and it worked. This time, one of my favorite authors, Michael Lewis. His recent project called The Undoing Project is really cool. It tells a story of behavioral economists and Um, We're going to get into that in the interview. But, you know, you probably know Michael Lewis from maybe his earlier works like Liar's Poker or Moneyball or Flash Boys or The Big Short. I mean, the guy is so prolific. It's fantastic. But what I really found so fascinating about talking to Michael was that he's got a really good sense of how to look at a financial story or a complicated issue find these fantastic characters, draw you into the story, and teach you something along the way. It's like this spoonful of sugar really makes the medicine go down. And it's really exciting for me to be able to have him on the program after reading him for so long, but also to have him on to talk about The Undoing Project because it has such resonance for me because it's a, you know, obviously the story behind the fathers of behavioral economics. So right now, let's get into it. It's Michael Lewis here on Better Off. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, time for the big interview segment of Better Off. And today, special guest, author Michael Lewis. Okay, wait a second. He's written so many books, it's ridiculous. Uh, Besides Liar's Poker, The Blind Side, Moneyball, Big Short, Flash Boys... Did I do that too fast? Maybe I did. His newest is The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds. Hi, Michael Lewis. Welcome to Better Off. Pleasure to be here. All right, Michael. We start the podcast off the interview segment with one question. This is a very tough one. I hope you can handle it. What's the best money decision you've ever made? Um, I would say it was a very broad decision about how to approach approach money, which I, I kind of came to while I was sitting on a trading desk at Solomon Brothers back when I was, what, 24, 25 years old. I came to the conclusion that basically you shouldn't listen to anybody who tries to tell you what to do with your money, especially things like pick stocks, uh, and that I had no particular wisdom either, even though I was drenched in this industry. So I just backed off it, and I decided I, well, I'll make some g- kind of global decisions about how much I want in the stock market or how much I want in cash every kind of six or eight months, and uh, I put it in index funds or I give it to Warren Buffett to invest. And that's it. And I, and so the big decision is not to think so much about it. I think people spend way too much time thinking about it. Yeah, and we probably spend a lot of time talking about it in ways that are not actually productive. So I, I, I completely appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit about the new book, The Undoing Project, and how it is connected in a very interesting way to your book Moneyball about sort of the, the way that science... St- 
statistics worked its way into professional sports. So what's the connection between these two books? Uh, it's very organic. I mean, Moneyball was about, I mean, it was an investment book in a funny way. It was about the Oakland A's trying to find better ways to invest in baseball players and finding inefficiencies in the market for baseball players by using statistics. And so they found that there were these, they could find undervalued players and overvalued players. And they also found that they were kind of systematically overvalued and undervalued players. Good-looking players were systematically overvalued. Fat players were systematically undervalued, that kind of thing. So the book told that story about how they had gone into this market that you would think would be pretty efficient uh, and found new and better ways to value these players. What the book did not do was ever ask the question why these inefficiencies exist in the first place. And that's what The Undoing Project gets at. It's about the work and the relationship of two uh, Israeli psychologists named Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who showed back in the 70s and early 80s the way the mind made systematic misjudgments when it was faced with uh, uncertain situations, like the uncertainty of whether someone was going to be a good baseball player. So they showed the way that, like, why human beings misvalued baseball players, or anybody else for that matter. And and uh, I, I thought, well, with Moneyball, I sort of missed a trick, and turned out this story it was a rip-roaring story, too, so I went and told that. And what's interesting about these two guys, just as characters, and you always write, like, so beautifully and tell these stories— is they had a, um, a a symbiotic relationship for a long time. What drew them together initially? They were opposites, uh, personally. Uh, one was, the Tversky was a obviously brilliant life of the party. I mean, smartest man anybody ever met, is what everybody who ever met him said. Uh, sure, totally sure of himself. Great math, kind of accidental mathematician. Um, who I think had always wanted to be a sort of poet uh, or a literary critic. He wanted to, that side of himself. He, he was His mind was the mind of a logician, and he wished he had the mind of an artist. Um, Kahneman was the opposite, consumed with doubt, unsure of himself, tearing up his ideas the minute he has them, always looking for why he's wrong, uh, had the mind of a incredibly fertile and creative and imaginative about the way he thought about people, his insights about human nature. But he, he, he and he was sort of a, a natural artist type who wanted to be a scientist. And when they collided, they made magic together. I mean, I think what basically what drew them together was they realized there was this really interesting project. In the beginning, it just started with some simple questions about what human beings are doing when they're presented with a problem that even has a statistically correct answer. They don't go for that answer. They go for some other answer. So what's the mind doing when it's thinking and dealing with uncertainty, uh, which it's doing all the time? Uh, and they found very creative, interesting answers that they were able to sort of formalize into scientific papers. And I love the idea that they focus on kind of the the tricks that we play in our minds, that the mistakes are really the most interesting part of the way we process these situations, not the success story or the brilliant solution. So what is it that they actually found out about our um, intuitive judgment, our gut response to things? That it had these systematic kinks in it. And you're right. They went looking for error. And it was the, it was a very much a, an approach that a psychologist would take, especially someone who was interested in 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 perception. Uh, Kahneman had spent part of his career in perception, and he said, you know, when you study the way the human eye works, you start you study the mistakes it makes. You study the way it's fooled by optical illusions, for example. 
And they did they, they extended that thinking into the mind. When you study the way the mind works, you you study the mistakes it makes. You're kind of the equi- the mental equivalent of opti- optical illusions. And they found really a, a series of things. It was their their work really is uh, 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 dozens of little in- nuggets and insights. But the broad sort of buckets you might shove these insights into is they 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 showed the way um, when people are making kind of calculations as they move through life, the way they're, they're, it, those calculations are distorted by memory. The things that happened very recently distort, for example, our, our sense of the likelihood, likelihood of them happening again. Right after a big hurricane in New Orleans, everybody thinks a big hurricane is the thing that's going to happen. Right after a terrorist attack in New York, everybody's worried about a terrorist attack. They, they, they In their minds, they up the, the sense of the odds of that happening. It happens in the marketplace too, right? Right. It happens with a stock goes up. Oh, it's going to go up again. The stock market goes up. Oh, it's going to keep going up. That people's that, that they don't actually back away from what and and put things in perspective. That's that's one simple insight. They they show the way people think in stereotypes. You see a someone who looks like a baseball player or looks like a player you know is a really good baseball player, and you're more likely to think he's a good baseball player. You see a company that looks like a company that's that you that you've had success investing in. You're drawn to it. But what they did is they presented people with like little tests that to which they were right answers and wrong answers, though it was hard to see what the right answer was. And they said, answer these questions. And they showed the way people just every, not smart people, dumb people, everybody made the same mistakes on these tests. You know what's interesting? I kept reading the book and coming back to the financial crisis so many different times, right? But um, this idea that that we fit evidence to the theory, right? We find the evidence that supports our thesis, and then we don't pick our heads up and say like, oh, you know, just because we have not seen housing prices collapse in half doesn't mean that they can't or that we go back and we look for the reasons why we should be doing all these things like piling on to risk. So in other words, we don't even see what's under our nose. And how can we prevent that from seeping in again. But after, you know, we have this financial crisis, we look at these lessons, we know that we're processing mistakes, we're prone to mistakes. How do we use some of the these conclusions that Kahneman Tversky come up with and apply it to the financial world so we don't do this all over again? It's a really interesting question because as they, they point out over and over again, what are people, they, what they're saying in so many words is what are people doing when they're moving through the world and answering questions like, is this a good investment? Or should I vote for this person for president? Or do I want to live in this city? They're not making probabilistic calculations, even when they can. You know, even when they're sitting at a blackjack table and could count the cards, that's not what people do. Uh, what they're doing is telling themselves stories. And then after the fact, when they're, even when they're proven mistaken, they tell themselves a story about why really it couldn't have been otherwise. The two of them were sporadically pessimistic about people's ability to correct their own mistakes. And they were they were pessimistic because, as with an optical illusion, where even when it's pointed out to you, you still see what you see, mm. uh, these mental illusions they were pointing out are very powerful. They're intractable. They're there. They're, we're hardwired for, this kind, for certain kinds of fallibility. So what they said is, I, I think in so many words, that what you need to do is des- design your environment to check you when you're making decisions. Uh, I'll give you a concrete example that Amos inflicted on the entire U.S. airline industry. The head of of Delta Airlines 
pilot training program in the early 80s came to Amos and said, we have these problems. Our pilots are making decisions in the cockpit that could be catastrophic. They hadn't been, but we've had these very series of very weird mistakes, landing in Fort Lauderdale when the plane was meant to land in Miami. (laughs) I mean, really odd mistakes that the pilots were making. And they said, you know, this is going to end in tears, uh, and we don't know quite why it's happening. And they, they didn't have anybody else to call up, and they noticed Kahneman Tversky's work. They called up Amos Tversky. They said, what do we do? And Amos said, well, you know, that pilot who's making the misjudgment, he, uh, when he's making those misjudgments, he doesn't really have the ability to check himself very well. But how is, and he asked, how is your cockpit structured? You know, does the pilot have people around him who, who can say, oh, that's Fort Lauderdale, not Miami? <laughs> And they said, they said, they said, no. They said, actually, the way it works is the pilot's kind of an autocrat, and we do have a very top-down approach to decision making in the cockpit. He says, well, that's the that's the best hope for you is to change that. He says, put people in there who have the ability to question the judgment of the person who's putatively in charge, and you'll get better results. And they changed Delta Airlines to its credit change the culture of the cockpit so everybody could chip in. And other airlines followed suit. And the guy who ran Delta Airlines pilot training program said, after we did this, none of these problems happened again. That people can see other people's mistakes easier than they see their own. So what I would say to people who are in the position of making any kind of decision, including an investment decision, open up your process. Uh, because people will see the error you make in a way you don't. They will see you repeating mistakes in a way you don't because you always tell your story about why what you did wasn't a mistake. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to my interview with Michael Lewis in just a second. But boy, this entire book, The Undoing Project, really is a fascinating exploration of the intersection of psychology and money. And that is something that actually was used in the creation of robo-advisors, basically trying to take the emotions out of so many of our investment decisions. And you know what? That's what's so fabulous about technology and the advent of this research, because it kind of helps you address a lot of the unknowns and helps you manage all of those whispers in your ear that might lead you down the wrong path. Our sponsor, Betterment, has technology that helps you plan for the future and manage your investments intelligently with special attention paid to lowering fees and minimizing taxes. Betterment checks all the boxes, globally diversified portfolio, automatic rebalancing, and a fiduciary. I could go on, but for those who have more complex finances, maybe you just want someone to talk to. Betterment offers two additional service plans that give you access to a team of CFP professionals and licensed financial experts. You don't have to waste your time and money planning for the future. Sign up through our podcast link and you can get one month managed free. Visit Betterment.com slash better off for the offer and more information. And now back to my interview with Michael Lewis. I mean, you've been around traders your whole life. I, too, I started out in trading 100 years ago. And what I used to find with traders, I don't know if you found this as well, is that oftentimes they're sort of like golfers. They often don't tell you about their worst trade. They'll tell you, I mean, their best trade. They'll say, let me tell you about my worst trade. And they actually do talk about some of the things that they've done wrong. Is part of the problem that we have in our lives that we don't go back and ex- try to explore those those mistakes that we've made? You know, it's funny, what you just said triggered in me a thought that that might be one distinction between a professional and an amateur. Mm-hmm. That an amateur golfer remembers only his best shot. 
He remembers that ball soaring through the air that he hit square that's headed towards the pin. Never mind, he shot 140. <laughs> uh, it, 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 and it's what gets him back out there over and over again. And an amateur investor remembers the time they bought Apple when it was at two and it went to 2,000. It is true that a professional golfer remembers the mistake and focuses on it. It is true that the best traders are particularly interested in their error. That's absolutely true. And what's interesting is that maybe as you know, uh, retail investors, even if we do factor in our ignorance, we say we don't know any better. It seems to me that there's such that there's a desire to believe that someone else knows better. This is the problem. The, the problem, the big problem, if we're, if we're talking to individual investors, is their ability to accept that many of the things they're making, they're trying to making decisions about or predict. They're trying to make predictions, right? Right. Are essentially unknowable. They can't. They think, oh, I don't know it. But there's some professional who does know it. Now, it's true. There's some professional who does know he can calculate the volatility of your portfolio or he can calculate um, the past performance of stocks. What he can't do is predict the future. And and I think people get themselves in all kinds of mistakes simply by thinking that things are knowable that are not – they don't accept that things are unknowable. And worse, after things turn out a certain way – they weave a story, and Kahneman and Tversky were, were very kind of, kind of imaginative in the way they showed how people did this. After the fact, they tell themselves a story how they could have known it or should have known it, should have seen it coming, mm. so that they never address, they never get to the main point that, they, that there are awful lot of predictions we shouldn't be making at all. We should just accept we can't predict. As you said early on, like that may be the theory why you and also obviously Warren Buffett recently saying, hey, just stick to an index fund, man. Like don't drive yourself nuts because that is part of creating a system where you acknowledge that, hey, I don't know anything, but no one else really knows anything either. What you know, Warren Buffett went further and he said management, which you're paying people to manage money, they're not worth. Yeah. Uh, you, you should not waste your. That's the mistake. If you want to have more money at the end, at the end of the investment process, at the beginning, don't give ten percent or five percent or two percent to some money manager to make decisions that you could that shouldn't be made. That could be easily made on your own in a much simpler way. And uh, in this case, Buffett's not hypocritical because he doesn't actually charge people for his investment advice. You buy shares in Berkshire Hathaway and you get his advice for free. That's right. And and what's also you know interesting about that is that. It does blow the entire facade of financial services out of the water, right? It's like, you know, you can't pretend like nobody does know better. So why is it that it's been taking it has taken so long for ordinary investors to come around to that? I mean, we do know that more money went out of uh, active funds into passive funds. But what is it that we are seeking that we don't want to acknowledge that this is all unknown because that's too scary? What is it about that that's so scary for us? Well, there, no, there, there are a couple of things that are going on, I think. One is um, a false notion of expertise uh, that, that we do see in the world. There are experts who can help us. Doctors can help us. Uh, that doctors uh, often – 200 years ago, they couldn't help us. But now they've they, – they, they, you go to a doctor, you're better off usually than if you didn't go to the doctor. Um, there are spheres in which there is genuine expertise. And the problem is we port our 
our um, sense of expertise into into spheres where there's just no expertise. And Wall Street is a huge beneficiary of it. Secondly, people are naturally anxious in the presence of uncertainty. Mm. They don't, people don't cope with it well. They they try to turn, this is what Danny and Amos, Kahneman, Tversky were saying. They're facing an uncertain situation. They, They tell themselves a story to eliminate the uncertainty. And what Wall Street has done for forever is tell is tell people stories to ease the to eliminate the uncertainty and make people feel like they're not in an uncertain situation. Where I would say, if you have any kind of money you're managing, you're much better off just accepting the fact you're gonna you have the discomfort of uncertainty. If you do anything to remove it, likely what you're doing to remove it is going to make the situation even worse. Uh, so the financial sector does prey on these anxieties. I would say, though, it is one of the big, discrete changes in the financial world that some huge sums of money over the last 20, 30 years have gone out of, you know, give it to my stockbroker to make picks in the stock market for me to index funds. It's the big thing in our, in our era. Uh, so that people are wising up. You turn on the TV and the, ad, the financial ads are for Schwab telling you not to listen to your broker. I mean, that's, those, are, those are big sea changes in the people's approach to money. So people are starting to kind of get this. It's just on the – they don't get it. They don't get it. They should get it even more than they get it. So you have written about geniuses behind behavioral finance, behavioral economics. You've really told stories about complicated number stories in the big short, sort of dismantled the, the world of Wall Street from the late 80s in Liar's Poker. You love writing about sports. What area have you not written about that is just it's intriguing to you? Like, what do you say to yourself, like, Oh, you know what I'd love to write about someday? What is on that list? Well, I can't avoid staring at what's going on in our federal government and thinking that has to be addressed. There's got to be some interesting way to address that. So, I mean, we are, uh, I think we're in a kind of state of crisis in our society. And I can't not think about it. So I suppose I'm drifting in that direction. I won't leave sports behind as a subject. I probably won't leave finance behind as a subject. But I think right now the urgent subject that's crying out to be addressed is why our government's broken. So I don't, I don't quite know how I'm going to go about it yet. I have some ideas. But that's, the, that's a natural subject. And it's interesting, though, how that kind of plays into the story of Tversky and Kahneman about, you know, trying to kind of intuit something, an outcome, and being wrong about it, right? Because we went through this whole last, say, 18 months where we thought we understood what the, even with probabilities, and we've had the guys from 538 on this show explaining, you know, why it wasn't such a big deal that that everyone was wrong because 30% probability is a pretty big probability, but that we just didn't quite look at things that were right under our nose. So what is it that was right under our nose? Did you see something that was under our nose over the last 18 months that made you think, hmm, maybe this guy, this guy Trump actually has a chance? No, no. What, what I've seen is what Kahneman Tversky would point out is that basically nobody saw it coming. And yet after the fact, people weave stories as if it were inevitable. It was not inevitable. There's a huge accidental component to Trump getting elected president. You hold the election 
two weeks on either side. You do various little little things happen, and they could easily have changed the outcome. So the idea that this was like this was foreordained is nuts. Trump himself had not written an acceptance speech. His only speech he'd prepared was, a sp- and he'd prepared up to the election to say how the election was rigged, and he, well, that's why he lost. He didn't think he was going to win with an election or with an investment or with a gamble in a casino. You are dealing with inherently uncertain events. They, they can be surprising outcomes. Anybody who tells you they saw it coming, demand to see the videotape explaining <laughs> why it was coming. Exactly. But, and, and now it's not that there was – now there's a further point to this, that there's always someone who saw things coming. So this was the weakness of the book I wrote, The Big Short. The book is about people who saw the financial crisis coming and made a fortune betting against the subprime mortgage market. There was still a huge degree of luck involved in those bets. It could have happened five years after it happened. A madness could have gone on for five more years, and those guys would have all been bankrupt. Uh, They look like geniuses because they were lucky in their timing. There is nothing that can happen on this planet, however improbable, uh, including little purple men landing uh, landing from outer space and talking to us, that someone hasn't predicted. So you even have to be wary of the people who predicted it, because simply because they predicted something doesn't mean they have some deep wisdom that will lead them to predict the next thing. Michael Lewis, we end the each interview with the bookend to our first question. What's the worst money mistake you've made? That's very easy. Um, <laughs> I, it's going to take me a minute to explain. I, my father introduced me to uh, my, my first stockbroker, uh, and there was kind of a family obligation to use this stockbroker. And he moved on, and he handed me over to his young successor, and the stockbroker was – and let's leave the company out of it. Yeah. And uh, a big stock brokerage firm. I followed my own rules. I never listened to anything they said. But this new young stockbroker made me feel kind of socially guilty that I wasn't listening to any of his advice. He was wounded by the fact that I just mm-hmm. want to stick my money into index funds. And he made me feel – I felt so kind of badly for him. I thought, okay, I'll let him pick a couple of things for me to do uh, so, we, so he feels like his job is important. And in my retirement account, I said there was a little bit of money. I said, just put us put it in something that we just won't lose money. Uh, and this was in 2000 and maybe six or seven. It mm-hmm. was in 2007. And he said, I got two things for you. It's just like it's completely safe. One is Lehman Brothers preferred oh! stock. And the other and the other is auction rate security. No. And, and, uh, he went and it, it was the most incredible perform example of financial ineptitude and that I was an idiot to listen to him but I just closed my eyes and I said well this will make him happy how how bad could it be and made those investments well you know what you should do you should probably stay in touch with him because that sounds like a great contraindicator and anything he would tell you to do you could just short <laughs> which would be great Michael Lewis the author of the undoing project a friendship that changed our minds thank you so much for joining us and better off thanks for having me take care You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for our favorite part of every show. It's your calls. So much fun. This is the time where I really get to flex my old CFP muscles, especially now, Mark, that I am the senior ambassador of the CFP board. Yeah, Mark says he's got more respect for me now that I've been named the senior ambassador, which, uh, hey, I'll take it. He doesn't respect me at all anyway, so it's okay. 
Uh, all right. If you would like to get on the program, just shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Right now, we are going to talk to Megan, who is calling from Wyoming. Hi, Megan. Welcome to Better Off. What can I do for you? Hi, Jill. Um, my husband works for a small startup, and he was recently given some stock options. And we just want to know what tax things that we need to look out for. Are there any sort of liabilities we're taking on if we buy into these stock options? And just kind of an overall understanding of stock options and how they work. Okay, so the, generally speaking, and I'm going to give you broad brush because I, you know, uh, I'd have to look at the exact type of stock options, but I'm going to tell you how most of them work. Usually you are granted stock options. And what's a stock option? A stock option basically gives you the right but not the obligation to purchase the stock at a specific price in the future. So, for example, if the what are your options? Do you know what the price they were awarded at for you? They are are awarded at 1 cent. Okay. So, here's so How many 40,000? Yes. Oh, okay. So this is a real startup. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so what happens now is that usually you are granted these options and you don't have to do anything with them. OK, you don't have to do anything. Remember, it's the right, but not the obligation. If you wanted to basically make these options into stock, you you're granted the options, you say, oh, OK, I want to exercise my options and then I want to own my stock at a penny. Or something, you know. That's what whatever the stock valuation is, and usually the initial grant of the options is not taxable in the moment you get them. Although you should just double check with the company and say, are these is this a taxable event immediately? That's your first question, okay? Because it depends what kind of options they are. Next, if you decide that you want to exercise your option to purchase the stock then you may have the ability to just own the stock. Now, once you own the stock, nothing happens. You own the stock, right? But the next question is, what happens when I sell the stock? Once you own the stock, if you hold this position, the stock for more than a year, it's considered a long-term capital gain and it's taxed at long-term capital gains rates. However, if you exercise the options, and immediately sell the stock, then whatever, and let's just pretend that like, you know, the company goes great. You've got these, you know, one cent options and now the company's worth $10 a share. And you're like, oh my God, I want the money. I'm going to sell everything. If you exercise the options and sell the stock immediately, it's as if you got all that money paid to you as income. So the big question What you need to ask the company is the tax consideration for the initial stock option grant. Then you want to ask, okay, well, what happens if we exercise the options? Is that a taxable event? And then make sure that these are the types of options that if you hold them for more than once you have the stock, if you hold it for more than a year, that it would be treated as capital gains. So generally speaking, what I always say to people about stock options is you tend to leave them alone for a while unless you're starting to get the sense that the company is um, going to have some sort of takeout event. And you can always make a decision in the future. But generally speaking, this initial grant is not going to cause you a lot of pain and anxiety. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourselves just so we can talk about kind of like the bigger financial planning issues. My husband and I got married last August. Um, 
We probably make about a $70,000 a year combined income. We have our $20,000 saved for an emergency fund. We um, have a mortgage where we owe $120,000 on a house that's valued about one eighty. And um, I have about 30000 in retirement. Unfortunately, my husband hasn't started saving for retirement, so I'm trying to get him to do that. Does, it, does this young um, startup company have a retirement plan? No, I don't know. They're trying to do this as like more of like a bonus kind of incentive to stay with the company. Right, right. Because usually what will happen is if you leave the company within some period of time, you have to walk away from the options because they're not vested. How's your cash flow on that seventy grand? Um. We are constantly just working it. We try, we're trying to be budgeters. We're not budgeters by heart, but getting married, we decided we needed to. So um, we save about, I mean, I max out my health savings every month or per year. We're putting a little bit into a Roth, um, and then we save about $600 a month from that. Well, that's and not bad. Most of the rest. Hey, that's yeah. pretty good. And, and are you maxing out your retirement account or not? I am doing the best I can, but I'm on a pension. I work for the school district, Mm -hmm. so the school district maxes out my pension, and then I have a 403B that I put $400 into a month, and then a Roth that I put about $150 into a month. Well, that's pretty darn good. So, I I mean, look... It doesn't sound like you have so much free money to be putting away in his 401k anyway. It would be nice if he just got into the habit of it more than anything else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because once you're in the habit, it's hard, you don't usually break that habit. So, I, I mean, if he could just maybe say to him, you know, let's just put in uh, $200 a month into the, a Roth for him, right? That would be a, a, a very good idea. And in terms of the stock options, like I said, you're not going to have any, I don't think you're going to have a liability immediately. I think what you need to ask of the company is just a few questions around the tax treatment of the option grant of when you exercise the options and then when you sell the stock. I I know that someone there, like if they don't have it, someone's managing their stock option plan and they'll be able to tell you that pretty quickly. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much for calling, Megan. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Well, that's it. That's the end of the program. Thanks again to Michael Lewis, who was very gracious in allowing me to wrangle him for this interview when so many people pulling him in lots of directions. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag BetterOff. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. BetterOff is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.